You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Easter series, Rise Up. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you joined us this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Today is Palm Sunday, which is the first Sunday or first day of Holy Week. It's the Sunday before Easter. And Holy Week, by the way, is the week when we remember the events of Jesus' final week leading up to his crucifixion and then, of course, his resurrection from the dead. And so for this week and next week, we're doing a short, just two-part series for Palm Sunday and Easter, which we call Rise Up. And that we're considering in this short series what it means for us to rise up to new life in Christ in light of the fact that he has risen from the grave and defeated death on our behalf and given us new life. After Easter, we're going to be doing a special series that I'm really looking forward to. I hope that some of you are too. It's going to be called The Trouble Is. And during that series, we're going to be addressing and answering some of the common questions and objections that people have when it comes to embracing Christianity. And uh, our goal with this, our hope, is that maybe we can remove some of those barriers so that people can truly wholeheartedly embrace the gospel. So if that's you and you wrestle with some certain questions, or if you know people who do, this is a great opportunity to come and hear some answers to those things. This morning we will be looking at what is called the triumphal entry. This is when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. He was welcomed as king and this is, we're going to see why it's called Palm Sunday and what it tells us about Jesus and what it means for us. So let's go ahead and begin by reading our text which comes from John, Gospel of John chapter 12 starting in verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus from the dead and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that this morning as we consider this, Lord, we would consider what it means for you to be our king. And truly that that would be the case, Lord, that increasingly and even today we would declare you our king. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1968, the artist Andy Warhol famously predicted that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. That's where we get the whole concept of 15 minutes of fame. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly true. There are plenty of people who live in places like Siberia or Arkansas that I have never heard of. And, uh, or maybe that just means that we're not living in the future yet. Maybe the future is still yet to come. But maybe the more important question is, even if you could be famous for 15 minutes, are you sure you would want to be? I'm not sure I would because see, being famous it takes its toll on people. I don't know if you've noticed that. And a big part of the reason for that is because people are incredibly fickle. We have this tendency as human beings to be incredibly fickle. One moment we love something, the next moment we hate it. And, you know, that's what you have to deal with if you have 
15 minutes of fame even, is that you deal with one moment being very popular and the next moment being hated. And just as anyone in Hollywood could tell you or any professional athlete, it's a hard life. And you almost have to feel sorry for these people because it's one thing to become famous, but if you want to stay famous, that's exhausting. And so what often happens with celebrities, right, is that one minute they're the, the new hot thing, but if they want to stay popular, that's very difficult because if you just mess up one time, if you do one wrong thing, people turn on you. And we have this phrase that we say that people turn on you and they crucify you. What we mean by that is that they attack you publicly and try to bring you down. That's a curious choice of words, isn't it? To be crucified. Because there was someone who actually did experience the fickleness of people the same people who sang his praises on Sunday later crucified him later in the week, literally. In our text today, we see the part where people were still singing his praises and welcoming Jesus in as their king. And in this text, though, we see something very important about who Jesus is and what he came to do, as well as what he will do when he comes again. So the title of today's message is The Coming of the King. The Coming of the King. And as we go through this text, we're going to go through it verse by verse, but there are three things that I want you to see about Jesus in this text. Number one, the lion who is a lamb Number two, the humble king. And number three, what happens when you welcome him in. So the, the lion who's a lamb, the humble king, and what happens when you welcome him in. Let's begin by looking at the, the very first part, the lion who is a lamb. So the setting for this event, let me give you, let me paint the picture here for you. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So the majority of Jesus' life and ministry was spent in the north of Israel, in the region of Galilee around this lake or the sea it's really a lake it's a large lake of Galilee it's a northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee that's where Nazareth was and Capernaum so Nazareth and Capernaum were kind of Jesus's hometowns his home base and that's where he did most of his ministry was in that northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee and that was about a three days journey by foot to travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem which was kind of in the south central part of Israel and throughout the year, the Jewish people had seven major holidays, which were outlined in the Old Testament that they were to keep, seven major holidays. But of those seven holidays, there were three what they called solemn or high holidays. And on these three high holidays, all able-bodied Jewish people, no matter where they lived, even if you lived outside of Israel, you were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate those holidays. And those three holidays, by the way, were Passover, that was the biggest, most important one. The next one was the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, which means 50. So it was the 50 days after Passover. And then you had the Feast of Tabernacles. So those three were the three times a year when all Jews from all over Israel and all over the world were required to come up to Jerusalem for these festivals. And they would travel. And there were songs that they would sing, by the way, when they traveled. In one way, it was to pass the time. But in more importantly, it was to prepare their hearts for what they were going to do when they got up to Jerusalem. And these songs are actually found in the Bible. They're called the Songs of Ascent. They're also sometimes called pilgrim songs, and they are Psalms 120 through 134. So when you're reading through the Psalms, keep that in mind. Psalms 120 through 134 are the pilgrim songs. These are the songs that they would sing in their groups as they walked for days up to Jerusalem for these three great feasts. By far the most important of the three great feasts, of course, was Passover. And on Passover, they, re they remembered and they celebrated how God had saved them and set them free from slavery in Egypt, and God had let them go out of Egypt and into freedom. And the way that they would celebrate Passover is that they would reenact 
the very first Passover meal. Right, so the story of Passover, by the way, is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, for those of you who are interested in knowing that. Here's what happened, just to summarize it for you. God had sent Moses to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he demanded that Pharaoh release the people of Israel from slavery. And Pharaoh, of course, said, no thanks. Like, I'd like to keep my free workforce, so no. And God said, well, look, if you don't let my people go, well, then I'm going to send a series of plagues upon you until you are willing to let them go. And, of course, we know what happened. One plague, the next plague, Pharaoh kept saying, no, no, not going to do it. But then finally there was the final plague. And at that plague, that's when things broke. God said that this is the final plague. He sent the angel of death on the land of Egypt. And, but he warned the people ahead of time. He said, this night death will visit all of your homes. And in every home, the firstborn child in each home in Egypt will die. But he said, look, there is a way to be spared. There's a way to be saved from this calamity. Here's what you have to do, okay? Each family has to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb. You can't take, you know, the sick lamb that you wanted to get rid of anyway. You can't take any lambs that have deformities or problems. It has to be a good lamb, very best. And you're going to take that lamb and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to grill it over a fire. You're going to grill it over a fire, and then you're going to eat it for dinner. And you have to eat the whole thing, right? So there can't be any leftovers. And if your family's too small to eat a whole lamb, then join up with some other family. You've got to eat the whole thing, no leftovers. And you're to eat the meat with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And each of those symbolize something as well. But he said, when you slaughter the lamb and you drain its blood, he says, I want you to collect that blood in a bowl, and then I want you to get a paintbrush, and I want you to paint the outside of your house with the blood of that lamb around your door. And if you do that, if you paint the blood of the lamb on the outside of your door and you follow these instructions, then when death comes this night, you will be spared. Death will pass over your house. Now let's just be really honest and say that is, that's pretty crazy sounding. Think about this. What if your neighbors walked outside and say, oh, hey, hey, what's, what's Nick doing today? Oh, I'm just painting some animal blood on the outside of my house. No big deal. You know, so my family doesn't get killed in the middle of the night. They would think that's pretty strange. It would take a lot of faith to obey these instructions because, I mean, it is it's a bit strange, right? It's abnormal. But the next morning, all the people wake up, and it's exactly as God said that it would happen. Death had visited every house except for those who had covered their houses around their doors with the blood of the lamb. And as a result of that plague, Pharaoh finally relented. He released the people from slavery in Egypt and let them go. And that was the event which the people were commemorating when they celebrated Passover every year. In fact, if you read through the Psalms, you read through the Old Testament, that event, the Passover, was the central event in Israel's history. It was the most important event in all of their history because it, here's what it represented. It represented the fact that God loved them, that God cared about them, and that God set them free. He cared about them enough to set them free from what was enslaving them and to give them a bright and brilliant future. So at the Passover, every year, every able bodied Jewish male would come up to Jerusalem with their family and they would bring with them a lamb the very best lamb by the way because that's a principle that we are taught in the Bible we always give God our very best we don't give him the rest we don't give him the leftovers we don't give him the stuff that we don't need or don't want anyway we give him our best because he's worthy of it and so they were to bring up their best lamb up to Jerusalem or if you know it was a long walk uh, they would say okay well we'll just purchase a lamb when we get to Jerusalem. So they would do that, and then after they purchased lamb or brought the lamb with them, they would have to have that lamb examined by the priest to make sure that it really was a good lamb without any flaws. And then they would slaughter that lamb, and they would eat it with their family 
on Passover in remembrance of the very first Passover. So that's our setting. Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate Passover. Now this isn't the first time they've gone up to Jerusalem. Remember, there were three major feasts a year for which they would have to go up to Jerusalem. So they've gone up to Jerusalem several times together before. But this will be the last time that they go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus has already broken the news to his disciples. See, right before they set out on this trip, Jesus and his disciples were up north in this area called Caesarea Philippi, just north of the Lake of Galilee. And Jesus told his disciples there, he said, right before they left for Jerusalem, he said, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. I am going to suffer many things at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, and I'm going to be killed. And then he says, but I'm also going to rise on the third day. But they, they didn't really pay attention to that part. All they could hear was, I'm going to be killed. And, and when he said that, one of his disciples, Peter, who uh, often put his foot in his mouth, but the thing about Peter is that he was only saying what everybody else was thinking. right? So Peter speaks up and he says, hey, Jesus, listen, cut it out with all this negative talk, okay? Like, stop saying all, all these negative, depressing stuff. You're the Messiah. You need to make some more positive affirmations, right? Like, nothing like that will ever happen to you. You're the Messiah. And that's when Jesus spoke up to Peter and said, Peter, Get behind me, Satan, because you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are setting your mind on the things of man. See, Peter, again, he's only saying what everybody else was thinking. Every Jewish person knew that the Messiah was to be a king, a king. And the Messiah would come and he would drive out all of the oppressors, all of the occupiers, everything that oppressed them. He would drive it all out and he would set them free and he would reestablish the throne of King David. He would be the new Moses who would stand up to the oppressors, the enslavers, in this case the Romans, and lead the Jewish people out of bondage and into freedom. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, that's not, that's not how this is supposed to go. That's not, how, that's not the script. You're, th this is not what's supposed to happen. That cannot be. You're supposed to be the king. You're not supposed to die. And so here in verse 12 of John chapter 12, where we've been reading, the very first words say, the next day. Now, if you track that back to the beginning of chapter 12, you'll see what day that was. So he comes into town on a Friday. The next day is Saturday, which is a Sabbath. And then Sunday, the next day. So Sunday... Palm Sunday, this would have been, for them, remember, Sunday wasn't their day off. This would have been the very first day of preparation for the Passover. So the first day of preparation for the Passover. This is the day when each and every family would bring their lamb into Jerusalem to the priests in Jerusalem to be examined to see if it had any flaws. And so I want you to picture the scene in your mind's eye. Tens of thousands of lambs are being brought into the city of Jerusalem through a couple of gates. And amongst them, here is Jesus entering the city, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist called Jesus. John was there with his people doing his thing, and he looked up and he sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says to his people around him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he is, the Lamb of God, approaching the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by all of the other lambs who are being brought in in preparation for the Passover and who are going to be examined. And it says there in verse 12, When the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In our day, we would call this a ticker tape 
parade. This is how they did it in those days. They would cut down palm branches and they would wave them in the air and they would lay them on the ground as, as a kind of red carpet, you know, laying out the red carpet for someone special. And they were shouting this word, Hosanna. This word, by the way, Hosanna, what it means is save now, save us now. And this practice of waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, this was a tradition which actually began 200 years prior to Jesus coming at this time. It began with these people called the Maccabees. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were 400 years. They're called the silent years, the intertestamental period also. 400 years when we don't have any writings, but we do know from historians what happened. And there was this group called the Maccabees. So let me tell you what happened with them. During that time, Israel was taken over by the Syrians, okay, the Syrians, and the Syrians had this terrible ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a bad dude. He was brutal. He was terrible. In fact, he was not only those things, but he was absolutely blasphemous. And at one point, here's what he did just to desecrate the Jewish temple. He went in and he entered the Jewish temple and he went into the most holy place. Remember, we talked about that recently in our study of Hebrews, how the temple was set up with these different layers of holy places. So he went into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and he killed a pig in the holy of holies. You know, Jews obviously believed that pigs were unclean. And so just to desecrate their temple, he went in and he killed a pig in the holy of holies and then he forced the priests to drink the blood of the pigs and during that time that there was this man this jewish man named judas maccabee now that was actually his nickname maccabee means hammer it was hammer time and judas maccabee led the jewish people in a revolt against the syrian military and antiochus epiphanes it was called the maccabean revolt and it was during that time by the way that the, the practice of hanukkah came about and so they fought this guerrilla-style warfare against the Syrians for nine years. And in the end, they were successful in driving out the Syrians and liberating Israel, the Maccabees. Now, when that happened, the people celebrated and rejoiced by having a parade in which they did what? Guess what? They cut down palm branches, waved them in the air, laid them out on the ground, and created a red carpet. And from that time, Jewish coins always featured a picture of a palm branch on them. So for the Jewish people, a palm branch is a symbol of deliverance from oppression. So here in John chapter 12, that's all the background. It's now 200 years after the Maccabees drove the Syrians out of Israel. And the Jews now find themselves once again occupied by a foreign army, oppressed by a foreign nation. This time it's not the Syrians, it's the Romans. And so here comes Jesus, and what do the people want? They want him to be the next Judas Maccabee. And they're shouting, Hosanna, save now, liberate us, deliver us from the Romans. They welcome Jesus as their king, but it would only be a few days after this that the same crowd who's today singing his praises would change their tune and they would be shouting something very different. They'd be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The reason why? Well, because, see, they would soon discover in the, in the days following Palm Sunday that Jesus' agenda was not at all to drive out the Romans. See, that's what they wanted him to do. That's what they had hoped that he would do. That was what they thought needed to happen. But they soon found out that that's not what Jesus had come to do or what he was going to do. And when that happened, they turned on him. See, they were looking for a lion, but instead they got a lamb. They were looking for a victorious lion, someone to come in and, and wipe everybody out. Instead, they got a lamb who was coming for the slaughter. And they were upset when it turned out that Jesus' agenda did not match up with their agenda, that Jesus' agenda was different than their agenda. Let me ask you this question. Has that ever been the case with you? 
Have you ever gotten upset with God because he wasn't on board with your agenda? He wasn't acting according to your plan. See, because you got this big plan. You've got it all mapped out. Here's how my next 10, 15, 5, 10, 15 years are going to go. Here's how my life's going to go. I've planned it all to the T. I'm going to get married before I turn 30. Then I'm going to have 2.5 kids and a nice dog or cat, and we're just going to be a picture-perfect Instagram family, and I'm going to be successful in my business, and I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to do that thing, and it's all going to work out, and it's going to be great. And you say, okay, God, look, I did all the hard work for you. I mapped it all out. I, I figured out what needs to happen. Now all I need you to do is just do your God thing and bless it and make it happen. And, and then we'll be good, right? Do we got a deal? Sometimes it turns out that God isn't actually on board with your agenda. Sometimes his agenda is different than your agenda. What do you do then? Honestly, what do you do then? One of my friends wrote this the other day. I, I thought it was very insightful. Here's what he said. Palm Sunday serves as an illustration of the lifelong mismatch between what we think we need and what God has provided. I'll say it again because it really sums up everything we're talking about. Palm Sunday serves as an illustration of the lifelong mismatch between what we think we need and what God has provided. See, a lot of times we think we know what we need. We think, this is what I need in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, in order to be complete. But what if God has a completely different agenda altogether? What if he knows you better than you actually know yourself? And he does, actually. He knows you better than you know yourself. What if he loves you more than you can even possibly imagine, which is also the case? And so it's worth taking note of this, that those times when God doesn't act according to your agenda, when things go differently from what you've hoped that they would, I want to show you that God was doing something bigger and better than what they wanted. They just didn't realize it at the time. See, if you look at what's going on here, God is doing something bigger, something better than what they wanted him to do or even what they thought that they needed. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem not to save them from the Romans, but to save them from death itself. He's coming in to be their true Passover lamb. All they wanted, see, what they wanted was just too small. They just wanted to be liberated from the Romans. But God was doing something better than that, something bigger than that. You see, if Jesus saves them from the Romans... Well, in the end, what good is that? Because they're still going to die. They still have their guilt. They still have this sense that their life is meaningless and purposeless. If you overcome political oppression, what about your personal oppression? Jesus has come to deliver you from something far greater than the Egyptians, far greater than the Syrians, far greater than the Romans. He's come to deliver you from death and sin itself. He hasn't just come to make your circumstances better in the moment. He's come to save you from death and sin forever. He's come to take your place so that you can have life abundantly and everlasting. See, this is what makes him great. He is the lion who is a lamb. He's the lamb who is a lion. The way that he conquers is through his suffering. The way that he saves is through his death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle says, This is how we are saved, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the writer, John, the apostle, he's having this vision which he had about what's going to happen at the end of the world, right? And so he says in, he's having this vision and he's in heaven. And there's this scroll there that no one is able to open. That scroll, by the way, represents the title deed to the earth. And no one is found who can open this scroll. And John begins to weep. He's weeping because if no one can open this scroll, that means in the world it is going to be under this curse of sin and death forever. But then it says in verse 5 of, of chapter 5, But then one of the elders said to me, John says, Weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he says, I looked and I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain. John was looking for a lion, but instead he saw a lamb. You see, Jesus is the lion who is a lamb, the lamb who is a lion. The way that he conquers is by laying down his life. That is his strength. The epitome of his strength and his greatness is that he lays his head on the chopping block instead of us. He takes our place in death so that we can have his place in life. His strength, his greatness is found in this, his humility that he would lay down his life for us. That's how he saves us, not just to improve our circumstances in the moment, not just to give us an easier life now, but to save us from death itself, from sin and evil. That's what Palm Sunday is about. The lion who is a lamb, the king who has come, and his victory will be gained by laying down his life and dying on a cross so that we can be saved. And that brings us to our second point, the humble king. It says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey... And he sat on it. And this was to fill the, the prophecy which is found in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Only part of it is included here in John chapter 12. So I'd like to read you the whole thing from Zechariah chapter 9. It says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah had promised that when the Messiah came, he would come into Jerusalem, not riding on a stallion, which was the tradition, but riding instead on a donkey. And that was something which the Jewish people knew. They knew that this was a prophecy about the Messiah. But they always found it very confusing because, see, it's really hard to go to war if you're riding on a donkey. Have you ever seen those equestrian statues, right? Like a lot of them on the East Coast. I think there's one in downtown Denver, right? There's, there's that guy sitting on a horse with his sword pointed forward and he's leading the charge into war. How many times have you ever seen like a guy sitting on a donkey, you know, big ears on the donkey statue? You know, it's just the thing about donkeys is they're really not great in battle. They're not great in war. Like you hear about war horses, but you don't hear a lot about war donkeys, yeah, it would just be ridiculous. I mean, just imagine a military leader charging into battle, riding on a donkey. There's a reason why donkeys have never been used in war. They're not very tall, and they're not very fast, and they're super stubborn. So, like, if you're in a bind and you need your donkey to do something, don't count on it. Because, uh, well, in addition to that, they're pretty goofy looking, right? Like, it's, it's kind of silly to go into war on a donkey. And so, even though the people knew that this was a prophecy, for centuries and for generations, they were confused by it. Because, look, if the, if the Messiah is coming to liberate us from everything that oppresses us, then why is he riding on a donkey? Why isn't he riding on a horse like, like you're supposed to? See, in ancient times, and actually even into modern times, conquering generals, conquering military officials have always ridden on white horses. Even as recently as Napoleon, Napoleon would ride on a white horse. And, and even as recently as World War II, you know, the Hungarians had lost a lot of land in World War I, and so during World War II, they had this leader named Horty. And Horty, this is exactly what he would do. They would go into the, the regions that they lost, and he would come in on a white horse and conquer town and village after town and village. That's only in the 1940s, really recently. So this is just the way it's always been done. And yet here's Jesus. And he comes into Jerusalem not riding on a horse, but riding on a donkey. Why? Here's why. To make it crystal clear that he has not come to wage war in a military sense. He's not come to wage war in the traditional sense. He has come to fight a different kind of battle, a different kind of war. And here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus has come, but that he is actually going to come again. 
What we read about here, this was Jesus' first coming. But Jesus himself promised that he would one day come again. In the book of Revelation, and here's what's interesting, we're told that when he comes again, that time he will not be riding on a donkey, but he will indeed be riding on a white horse. And at that time he will come not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king who will judge and rule the nations. And so here's what's interesting. It says here that the people waved palm branches to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. For them, this was just their way of doing a ticker tape parade. But for Jesus, there was a more significant meaning. Jesus knew what this meant. Remember, palm branches represented liberation and deliverance from oppression. Jesus saw the deeper significance in this because here's what the Bible says about when Jesus will come again, what will happen. It says that all of creation will blossom and bloom and it will rejoice. Psalm 96, we read this in our call to worship today. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. And then when he returns, when the king comes back, shall all the trees of the forests sing for joy before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. In Isaiah 55, it says this, when the king comes back, when he comes back for good, here's what will happen. You will go out in joy and you will be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth in singing and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. The palm branches will be waving at Jesus except they'll still be attached to the trees. You see, they'll be singing for joy because he comes to make all things new. It's like that scene, if you've ever seen the, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the very first book, there's this scene where the curse is broken, and spring comes upon the earth, where there's been this perpetual winter. You remember there was a curse over Narnia. Perpetual winter, the book says it this way, it was always winter and never Christmas. But then Aslan, the great lion, comes and he, he breaks the curse by sacrificing his own life. And there's this scene where the evil ruler is, is destroyed and suddenly the winter breaks, the ice melts, and everything turns to spring. Flowers blossom, all of creation blooms into new life. And this is a picture of what will happen when the true king returns, when he comes again for good. In the presence of the true king, everything and everyone under the rule of the true king all of creation blossoms. And do you know that's true of you as well? Do you realize that in order for you to become all that God has made you to be, it is only when he is your king that you will blossom and bloom and be all that he made you to be. That is when you will experience the springtime of your life, when you bring yourself under his rule and make him your king and your Lord. So what Palm Sunday tells us, first of all, we see him as the lamb. We see that Jesus has come to be our savior, but now we see him as the king who is coming and will come again. And that's the second part. He's your savior, but he's also come to be your Lord. And let's, let's wrap up with this third point. What happens when you welcome him in? Verse 16, it says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and done to him. They didn't get it at first, but later on they understood. They understood that Jesus hadn't come to fight a military battle. He had come to fight a spiritual battle to defeat sin and death, and that one day he would come again to rule and to reign. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness that was the reason why the crowd had come to meet him when they heard about the sign so in other words this is what we're going to look at next week by the way we're going to look at this sign when he Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead verse 19 we'll finish here it says the Pharisees said to one another see that you are gaining nothing look the whole world has gone out after him the whole world has gone out after him let me ask you this have you gone after him as well? Are you following him? Are you pursuing him? Are you seeking him? Are you embracing him both as your savior and as your Lord? 
Here's what happens. I want to tell you three things quickly that happen when you welcome him in as your king and your savior. Number one, when you welcome him in as your king, he delivers you and sets you free from that which oppresses you and holds you captive. He delivers you and sets you free from that which oppresses you and holds you captive. Fear, sin, death, that insatiable need to prove yourself, all of those things, he sets you free. In Jesus, God forgives your sins. He gives you a new identity and a new future. And along with that promise that he will always be with you and he will always be working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Secondly, he gives you a new heart. He gives you a new heart. He gives you his heart. It's the heart of a servant. It's the heart of love. See, Jesus laid down his life, but not in weakness. He laid down his life of his own volition. That was his strength. You see, he gives you his heart. When you make him your king, he comes into your life and gives you his heart. That servant's heart that isn't looking for what can I get out of this, but is looking for how I can serve the other, the heart of true love. And thirdly, when you make him your king, he gives you the hope of his kingdom. See, if you are a part of his kingdom, that kingdom which will have no end, then you can face this life with complete courage and complete confidence, knowing that this is not all that there is. That in fact, this is as bad as it will ever get. And if that's true, then I can have complete confidence and courage as I face this life. In his kingdom, there will be joy and fullness of joy forevermore. There will be the knowledge of that, that joy. And that knowledge fills us with confidence and courage to face this life. It'd be kind of like this. If you're playing a sport, whether you're playing on a team or by yourself, if you're playing a sport, and if it were possible for you, as you're still playing the game, to know what the end score will be, right, the final score of the game, and to know that you're actually going to win, wouldn't you play the game a lot differently if you know that you're going to win in the end? You would still exert yourself, but you know what would be different? Although you'd still have to try, you you wouldn't be stressing out. You wouldn't be giving yourself an ulcer. You wouldn't be worrying. In fact, you'd be playing with confidence because you know the end score. You know that you're going to win, so you play with confidence. And you know what else? You'd probably enjoy it a lot more. And you'd take the setbacks with a stride as well because you know that, hey, okay, we're we're losing at the moment, but I know that in the end, I'm going to win. You take those setbacks with with a stride. And so here's the thing about the gospel. We do have that privilege. We do know the final score, even though we're still in the game. And because of that, we still give it our all, but we get to do so with confidence and with hope because we have the ability to actually enjoy the game a lot more as it gets towards the end. Finally, here in the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus as king. He is the king who saves us through his suffering. He is the king who will come again to reign over a kingdom which has no end. And my question for you today in closing is this. Have you welcomed him in and made him your king? Have you welcomed him in and made him your king? What we see on Palm Sunday is that Jesus has come to be both our Savior and our Lord. He is the lamb who was slain in order to save us. And he is the king who is coming to reign Have you received Jesus as both Savior and Lord? You know, one of the funniest sayings in the Bible is said by the Apostle Peter. He says it more than once, actually. And here's what he says. Jesus tells him to do something, and Peter's response is, No, Lord. And so here's why that's funny, right? Because if he's your Lord, well, then by definition, you can't tell him no. And if you tell him no, then he's no longer your Lord. And so here's Peter, you know, being pulled in two directions. On the one hand, he's saying no, but he's also saying, Lord, Jesus has come to be our Savior and our Lord. You can't say, Jesus, I want you as my Savior, but not as my Lord. Those two things are inseparable. They're integral parts of who he is. It'd be like if I came to your house and I knocked on your door and you said, come in, Nick, but stay out, Katie. I'd be like, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I, I can't, you can't separate those two. 
See, the same is true of Jesus. You can't say, I want you to be my savior, but then I want you to butt out of the rest of the stuff in my life. I want still to have control of my life. I want to still sit behind the wheel and call the shots. I don't want to surrender to you. I want things my way. You see, those two things, Savior and Lord, they're inseparable parts of who he is. There's a story that's told about the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's called the donkey on Palm Monday. And the story goes that having experienced such incredible success on Palm Sunday, this donkey wakes up on Monday, and he's feeling awesome because all these people love him, they adore him, he's feeling good about himself. And so he says, you know what, I've got all these adoring fans. What am I doing laying around here? I need to go and make an appearance for my fans. So the donkey walks into the center of town, and and he strolls down the main street, and he says to all the people, here I am, And, and nobody even bothers to look at him. He's confused, so he goes into the marketplace. And again, he, he goes in the marketplace, and he stops, and he looks around, and he says, here I am. And, and people do turn and look at him this time, but then they say, get that donkey out of this marketplace. And they start throwing things at him and tell him to get lost. And he's like, I don't get it. So the donkey goes to his mother, dejected and confused, and he says to his mom, I don't get it. Yesterday, they were singing my praises and cheering for me. And the, his mother said to him, silly child, don't you know, without him, you can do nothing. You see, it was only when Jesus was driving him, that's what made all the difference. And I want to ask you today, who or what is driving your life? Who or what is driving you? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Today is the day for you to receive him, both as Savior and as Lord. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to be exactly that. You have come to be our Savior and you have come to be our Lord. And I pray that, Lord, this morning would be a morning in which we receive you as both, as both Savior and Lord. Lord, thank you that you came to lay down your life for us so that through you we might be saved. And Lord, I thank you that you also came to liberate us. And part of that liberation that is that we experience, we truly experience the springtime of our lives. We blossom and become who you made us to be when you are king over us. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I do believe in Jesus, my Savior, but I haven't taken that step of making him my Lord. Lord, I pray that today would be the turning point in their life where they say, yes, I step over that line and I give you my life, Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.